morning church, um, we're going to read from Daniel 9 verses 1 to 24. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God, and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servant, the prophets. We spoke in your name, to, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and ancestors, are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses the servant of God have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing us on us a great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, <clears throat> yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of, the sc of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still praying, 
while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are righteous, and we are unrighteous. You are holy, and we are unholy, but you have condescended in your Son, Christ, that we might become your righteousness. I pray this morning you would help me as I bring this word and that we might get a glimpse of your glorious holiness, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and righteousness in Jesus Christ and be humbled by it for your sake and for your glory. Amen. The prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of a righteous person, Daniel 9, 1 to 24. Now, if you're a part of our congregation, you might be wondering why I have gone back into the book of Daniel. Let me explain. The one passage that I didn't do in our series on Daniel was the prayer in Daniel 9. And the reason I didn't do it was two reasons. One, I needed more time to study the passage. Number two, I wanted this passage to be the very start of our term together. It's become our custom over the last months or year that on the beginning Sunday of our new term, we have a prayer meeting. And I'm calling you this morning to come and pray tonight from 7 till 8. And I'm hoping and praying that this passage will be something of an impetus to you and an encouragement to you to come tonight and pray together. I'm going to start general. It's going to become narrow. We'll start general and then we'll delve deeper and deeper as we get into this passage. Here's my first point. The righteous believe. The righteous believe. Daniel is a righteous man. Daniel is indirectly referred to in Hebrews 11, in part of the Old Testament Hall of Fame, as one who shut the mouths of lions. And I want to give you a little definition of an Old Testament saint. Actually, there's the definition from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. 
Here's a definition of, 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 of an Old Testament saint. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. One of the questions that Christians often ask, and it's a good one, is how were Old Testament people saved? How were God's people in the Old Testament before the cross actually saved? And have a look at this picture as it comes up on the screen. And you'll notice that Daniel lived somewhere between the year 620 BC to around 530 BC. And the question we can ask is, how, how was Daniel and others like him saved? And I hope the picture explains something, that Daniel and the Old Testament saints were saved by faith in what? Were f- saved by faith in what God would do at the cross. They were saved by looking forward. They were saved by looking at what Christ would do, although the details in the Old Testament were quite unclear. Another way to put that is that the Old Testament saints had to wait for the righteousness of God in Christ. To put it another way, the Old Testament saints like Miriam and Ruth and Moses, David, Elijah and Daniel, they were credited in advance. Dave, uh, Daniel was righteous because of what Christ would do in the future. We're in this side, we're credited by faith in what Christ has done. We're saved by faith from first to last, from old to new. The righteous believe. Here's my second point. The righteous pray. This is a prayer of a righteous man. Daniel was a man of prayer. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why do the righteous pray? Salvation is not a ticket, or should I say, salvation is not a religious ticket. Salvation is not a system of doctrines and ethics. Salvation is not a 747 jumbo jet out of hell into heaven. Salvation is a love relationship with God. Salvation is an enduring, continuing, growing love relationship with the great God of the universe. Listen to this quote by Richard Foster. He says, an overwhelming love invites a response. Love is the syntax of prayer. To be effective prayers, we are to be effective lovers. In the words of Samuel Coleridge, In the old English, he said, he prayeth well that loveth well. You see, prayer doesn't come from gritting your teeth. Prayer comes from falling in love. God's people, as we discovered last week, who have circumcised hearts, they love God and they want to pray to him. Psalm 18 verse 1, I love you. Lord, my strength. Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord. And you remember the words of Peter, don't you, to Jesus in John 21 on the beach after the resurrection. Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I I love you. 
See, Daniel prayed much because he loved much. And if you were to go back through the book of Daniel, you will have noticed and picked up that Daniel is a great man of prayer, isn't he? You remember, don't you, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he calls in all his wise men and says, tell me what the dream means. Uh, but he says to the wise man, you, tell me, you need to tell me what the dream is so I know you can interpret it. He goes a bit bonkers. No one can do that. He decides to kill all the wise men, of which Daniel would have been included. And after Daniel hears this news, here's what happens. Here's Daniel's response. Then Daniel, after hearing the news, returned to his house and explained this crazy matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. You notice in response, what does Daniel do? He prays for wisdom and he prays for deliverance. When God reveals the dream to him and the interpretation, we get this. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. In prayer, Daniel praises God and thanks God for his answers. Do you remember Daniel chapter 6? You remember old Darius? He gets duped in his own stupidity and ego. His advisor said, let anybody pray to you for 30 days or they must get thrown into the den, the, the lion's den. And on hearing this, here's the response in Daniel 6 verse 10. When Daniel learned that the stupid decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Here's his response. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Isn't it incredible that when the beasts of this world make stupid decrees, Daniel prays. And now as we come to Daniel 9 this morning, we come to one of the most intimate, personal, extensive prayers ever recorded in the Bible. The righteous believe, the righteous pray, the righteous pray scripture. Follow with me in Daniel 9, verse 1 to 3. In the first year, Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, which is probably Cyrus, who, made, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth, and in ashes. I want you to have a look at that. Can you see that Daniel turns to God in prayer and allows the scriptures to direct his prayers? He knows what God is about to do, and he turns to God in the scriptures. And the question you might ask is this, why do we turn and pray to God about things that we know he's going to do? It's a profound question. For example, we know that the Lord Jesus is coming back, right? 
We know that. Do we know it for sure? Yes. Do we know when? So why do we pray, Lord Jesus, come? Why do we pray about things we know that God's going to do? The reason we do that is because when we pray Scripture, Scripture directs our hearts to God's kingdom, to God's purposes, to God's plans, to God's priorities, and to God's promises. Have a look at verse 4. Have I got verse 4 there? No. So look at verse 4 if you've got your Bible. Look, the great and awesome God who keeps his command of love with those who love him and keep his commands. So Daniel knows that the exile is nearly over. God is about to take the Israelites home to Jerusalem. And Daniel turns, he turns in prayer and petition to the awesome God who keeps his promises. Prayer is a response to who God is. It's a response to what God has done. It's a response to what God is doing. Prayer is a response to what God will do. Don't we pray that in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What? Thy kingdom. Is God's kingdom going to come? So why are you praying it? Because what you're doing is you're lining up your heart, your mind, your soul with the priorities, the promises, the plans of God. But I want to make this rather practical for just a moment. Tying our prayers to God's scripture doesn't just line up our priorities, but very practically, tying your prayers to scripture will impede mental drift. What do I mean? I wonder if your prayer life might run something like this occasionally. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence. It is a wonderful blessing to call you Father. Oh, I wonder where I've left my keys. Oh, Lord, Lord, back to you. Lord, please would you watch over my family and bless them. Man, last week's Sunday service was an absolute shocker, that preacher. Oh, I mustn't forget to take the boot, the pooch to Richard's hospital clinic. Oh, Lord, 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 back to Thank you, Lord, for the falconers that came to visit us. Won't you bless them? Oh, no, I forgot to put my report in on time. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. You see, what we're doing is when we're praying scripture, what are you doing? You're tying your heart to God's heart and you're stopping mental drift or you're seeking to as best that you can and you keep your heart on his priorities, plans, promises. The righteous believe, the righteous pray, the righteous pray. Scripture, now we're going to delve a little deeper. The righteous confess. The righteous confess. Got your Bible? Take a look at this. Verse 4. Notice the confession. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed my sins. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Verse 10, we have not obeyed. Can you see that the righteous 
confess. Now let me take you to this verse in 1 John 1, 9. It's probably one of the most frequently quoted, misunderstood, pulled out of context verses in all of the Bible. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. Now Christians often take this verse to say that if we confess our sins, God will forgive us. Right? Yes or no? Mm, we're not sure. Well, if it's yes, what happens if we don't confess our sin? Then we won't be forgiven, right? Is that right? Well, it can't be, can it? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is not about confessing your sin for salvation. It's about confessing your sin because you are saved. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is one of the markers of being a Christian. A Christian, someone righteous, is someone who confesses their sin. Does that make sense? Let me give you a simple little illustration. Maybe you can identify. You are a Christian. You are dinkum. You're born again. You're the whole deal. You're the real deal. You're at work and you have a moment of weakness. You take some money from the petty cash. You fully intend to put it back later or the next morning. You haven't tell your boss you're really hungry. So you take the petty cash and you go across to Alan's Cafe in Basselton. But before you can go across the road to have your lunch with the money you've taken, you're hit by a bus and you die. It's a bit dramatic, right? You stole. Okay, don't go to Alan's Cafe this week, please. I don't want any phone calls going across the road. You stole, right? You haven't confessed. You haven't made right with God. You haven't made right with your boss. All right, you're dead. You're lying in the middle of the road. Heaven or hell. But if we confess our sins, forgiven or unforgiven? Well, it's heaven, isn't it? And you're forgiven, right? Because Jesus died on the cross for? All your sin. He paid the penalty for all your sin, past, present, and future, and paid for all the sins, even those ones that you will never confess. I want to suggest to you this morning that if it was salvation by confession, we're all dying and going to hell. Because you cannot confess all your sin. It is absolutely impossible, especially those sins that go deep down in that mind of yours. You see, the righteous confess. Why? Because we know we're sinful. We know we still live in this body of death, don't we? We, we cry out like Paul in Romans 7, what a wretched man or woman I am, because we still sin. We know that. Here's a little quote again from Richard Foster. He says, Before a loving and gracious Father, we declare our sins without excuse or abridgment. We declare our unbelief and disunity, our arrogance and self-sufficiency, and offenses too personal to name and too many to mention. And then let me add, but knowing that our heavenly, gracious, loving Father has, has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. You with me? Let's keep going. We're going a little deeper. The righteous believe, the righteous pray, the righteous pray scripture, the righteous confess, the righteous confess the sins of others. Now it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable. Did you notice from verse 4 into 5, 6, 
10 and even verse 14. Do you see the switch? From the I to the, to the we. Do you see it? From the individual to the? Do you see it? I prayed to the Lord my God and I confess my sins. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have not obeyed. If you flick down to verse 14. And we have not obeyed him. Now let me tell you why this is uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable because Daniel is a godly, righteous man, isn't he? Daniel is not one of the Jewish apostates. Daniel is not one of those that are lusting after the idols of his heart. Daniel is not in the Jewish temple and then in the, or in, in sort of the, the Jewish place of worship and then in the pagan temple and he's trying to worship both and he mixes the two like the Israelites did, which is called syncretism. I mean, Daniel is a righteous, godly man. You remember that, don't you? Do you remember Daniel chapter 1? Do you remember how uncompromising he was? He would not eat the food offered to idols. He would not eat unclean food. Do you remember his courage when he spoke to Darius? I will not pray to you. You can throw me to the lions. Do you remember Daniel's courage when he confronted Belshazzar with that finger on the wall and called him to repent and turn to God? Do you remember that courage? This is not an unrighteous man. So here's the question. Why does Daniel, why does Daniel identify with ungodly Israel? Why does Daniel confess the sins of others that he was not directly involved in? Got the question? I want to give you four, four profound reasons. The first reason why the righteous confess the sins of others is that Daniel grieves the sins of others. Daniel... As a God-fearing, righteous Israelite, of course, is not sinless. But his own heart is absolutely grieved by the idolatry of the nation. That the name of God is so blasphemed among the Gentiles because of Israel grieves his righteous heart. If you went down in your Bible to verse 15, he says, God, you've, you, you've called this nation to yourself. You've rescued them from Egypt. You've taken them to Sinai. You've constituted them in blood to be your people. You've taken them to the promised land. All the prophets and the judges, they called and called and called. Yet Israel is a serial harlot committing unending spiritual adultery. And that idolatry absolutely grieves Daniel's heart. See it in verse 7. Oh God, oh there it is. God, you are what? You are righteous. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything that he does. You see, when you know, when you know that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, the unrighteousness of your own heart and the unrighteousness of others grieves your righteous heart. Does that make sense? Daniel confesses the sins of others, one, because he grieves the sin of others, two, Daniel grieves the collective responsibility. Now you need to stay with me here. Daniel 
grieves the sin of Israel, identifies with it, confesses it, because he is collectively part of Israel. Does that make sense? He's identifying a corporate responsibility. I am part of Israel. Perhaps the best way to explain this is to illustrate it. And this is going to get quite personal. Sometimes on the news or newspapers or whatever, very often when, for example, when a teenager, let's take a teenager, has committed a grievous harm against someone else. So let's say, for example, a teenager gets into a car unlicensed, drunk, and hits somebody else and kills them or hit and run or whatever. Very often you might hear the family say, on behalf of the family, we are so we're so sorry. So there's a corporate responsibility of that family. It says, we are so sorry. We. Because he's part of what? He's part of our family. We are so sorry for your hurt. We're so sorry for what he did. There's a corporate identification and confession and responsibility. I grew up in South Africa. I grew up in apartheid South Africa. I was converted in 1990, the very year that Nelson Mandela was released from 27 years of prison. It was around four years later that he became president and the walls of apartheid started to come down. I look back, and as a Christian, even then I did not, I did not call out the racism and the apartheid as I should have. I was part of a white evangelical church that never repented of its institutional racism and segregation. Our church leadership never led us through a corporate repentance and grief over the evils that we perpetuated against non-whites. Yet we called ourselves a God-believing, God-honoring church. I grieve my sin. I grieve my sin. And I am collectively responsible. For what happened. God forgive me. And God have mercy upon me. The Bible. The Bible is not pro-abortion. As you know. The Bible is not pro-abortion. According to who? World Health Organization. Every year in the world. There are an estimated 40 to 50 million abortions. That corresponds to 125,000 per day. Around the world. Though we are not abortionists, there is a collective, grievous responsibility where we cry out, God, have mercy. God, forgive us. Do you understand the corporate identity? Right now, brothers and sisters, in this country, around the country, the various Baptist unions are busy paying out millions of dollars in damages to those who were sexually abused that took place in our Baptist churches and Baptist missions in the previous decades. To this very date, the Baptist Union of Western Australia has paid out $2.4 million in damages They've had to sell property in order to pay the damages. It is estimated that in the next few months they will pay up to around 6 
million dollars in damages. You know why they're doing it? Because there's a corporate responsibility. There's a corporate identification. There's a corporate confession. As we grieve the sin of those that took place under the umbrella of the Baptist Union. And we call on God for his mercy and his forgiveness. I want to read you a little story. It's heavily edited for obvious reasons. And the name that I use is not her real name. I want to read a portion of a letter written by Kirsty to the Royal Commission. One of the women that will be receiving some of the damages paid out by the Baptist Union. Let me read. Kirsty was five years old when she came to Australia and joined a Baptist church where her grandfather was an elder and Sunday school teacher and held a position in the Baptist state hierarchy. Here's what she said. Women aren't given a choice in the Baptist church. There's huge oppression of women within the church. And once women are silenced, men can do what they like. From the time I got here from overseas to the time I was 13 to reach puberty, my grandfather abused me. And not only me, but my brothers and my sisters and all my cousins and all my uncles and all my aunties. So the entire family has been subjected to his abuse. I think he was a very sick man. Some of the abuse I remember was on church grounds. Often my parents would leave us overnight at my grandparents not knowing. As a little girl, Kirsty tried to tell her parents about her grandfather's actions. Her mother told her, you must have been really naughty then if granddad was touching. So I've grown up thinking that my parents knew about it and it was some sort of punishment for me being naughty. Though we are not directly involved, there is a corporate responsibility and we grieve and we confess the sins of the Baptist churches. We confess and identify with those who have perpetrated these crimes. And we say to Kirsty and to so other many other men and women, women and men, we are so, so sorry. We are so sorry. Please, would you forgive us? To the women in our churches who have been silenced, to the women in our churches who have not been allowed to use their gifts, to the women in our churches who have been, 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 been treated as inferior, subordinate image bearers, we are so, so sorry. Please forgive us. To the women in our churches who have been abused by men who claim to be Christian. And we've sat by and we've said nothing. We've done nothing. We are so, so sorry. Please would you forgive us. Daniel grieves the sin of others because the sin of others grieves his heart. He grieves collective responsibility because he's part of Israel. Daniel grieves the sin of leaders. Take a look at verse 8 with me. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors. This is, this is Daniel's prayer to God. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord. 
because we have sinned against you. Do you see it? Do you see it? See, everyone in Israel knew who these ungodly leaders were. They knew who the ungodly priests were. Didn't have to look anywhere. They were all written down. We've got them written down in the Bible. Do you see what he's doing? He's confessing their sin. He's calling out their sin. And he's taking a corporate responsibility. I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, there's a grievous thing happening in the church of Jesus Christ right now. There have been, in the last while, a a high number of very high-profile Christian leaders who have fallen in their sin. I don't need to tell you who they are. I don't need to mention them. You know who they are. Because they're all over the newspapers and they're all over the internet. As I've read their stories over and over and over again, there are so many patterns that begin to emerge, many But there is one very disturbing pattern that emerges. Those closest to them didn't call it out. Now when I say that, I'm not talking about the abused people who are abused by them. People who are abused take a very, very long time to be able to have the courage to come forward. I'm talking about those people that sat in meetings with them, that were friends with them, that had phone calls with them, that saw that what they were doing. They saw the red flags and they said nothing. We grieve. We confess. And we have to call it out. I don't care whether it's here with me. We call out sin in our Christian leaders. We do not turn the blind eye. The fourth reason that Daniel confesses the sins of others, Israel, is because he foreshadows the sin bearer. And I want you to stay with me here. I want you to see what happens. So look at this. Look what Daniel does. So verse, let's start in verse 16. He's crying out, God, Lord, in keeping with your righteous acts, won't you turn your anger and your wrath away from Jerusalem, away from your city, away from your holy hill? Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to those around us. So notice the prayer, God, turn away your anger, turn away your wrath. You see that? Right, watch. Down to verse 19, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear. Lord, act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. You see it? Turn away your wrath. Forgive us. Now, that's the prayer. Forgive. Forgive, Lord. Forgive the son of your people. Now, here comes the answer. Watch this. This is profound. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So as Daniel is praying, God, forgive, Dan, um, Gabriel comes and gives him an answer to the prayer, right? With me? Here comes the answer. Here comes verse 24. And we looked at this a little while ago, but here's the answer. Daniel, here's the answer to your prayer for forgiveness. 
77, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. Now let me ask you, my brothers and sisters, when is transgression finished? Or should I say, where is transgression finished? Where are you looking, Paul? Mm, looking at the cross. Where is the end to sin made? Just in case you're not sure. Where is wickedness atoned for? Where does God bring in everlasting righteousness for his people? Where? At the cross. You see, Daniel identifies and confesses the sin of Israel because he foreshadows the one who will not merely confess our sin, not merely identify with our sin, but will take our sin, pay for our sin, atone for our sin, put an end to the punishment of our sin. See, when Daniel prays, God forgive, God answers where? In the, in the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. I'm going to take you to my final point. It's going to come up all in one shot on the screen and we'll work through it for a couple of minutes. Would you take me out of the way and hope you can see that. The righteous believe, the righteous pray, the righteous pray scripture, the righteous confess, the righteous confess the sins of others. Daniel grieves the sin of others. He grieves the collective responsibility. He grieves the sin of leaders. And Daniel foreshadows the sin bearer. What that means is that the righteous need to respond. To respond. Firstly, and it's on the right-hand side. Right. The righteous respond by faith. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that we continue to believe with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength that the righteousness of God can only come from, from Christ himself. Do you understand that? Do you understand how sinful we are? Do you understand how sinful we are before conversion and afterward? <laughs> I know there's differences, but do you get it? I mean, how could righteousness ever be something we could earn? How could it ever be of works? It's not possible. My beloved righteous, continue to believe that in Christ you are the righteousness of God because of Him, for Him, from Him, to Him. Are you righteous by faith this morning? Are you? So the righteous also respond by praying. Do you pray much because you love much? 
Do you pray much because you love much? Do you love God? Is that why you pray to him? Because you love him. Thirdly, the righteous respond by praying scripture. Do you use scripture to pray? And if you don't, then I hope that this may be a great encouragement to you to do that. To take God's word, to allow that, to prioritize your praying and talk to him, even from the heart. And uh, probably help you to not drift off too much as well. Thirdly, fourthly, the righteous respond by confessing. Do you want to know how you're a Christian? One of the ways in which you know is because you confess your sins. Do you confess your sins, my brothers and sisters? Do you daily confess your sin? Do you confess your sin to God and do you confess your sin to others? The righteous, fifthly, confess the sins of others. Do you grieve and confess the sins of the church? Do you grieve and confess the sins of this church? It's all too easy to gossip about it and slander it instead of what? Confess it. Do we grieve the sins of the church? Do we grieve the sins of this church? To grieve and confess the sins of our Christian leaders? Before we throw the stone at them, do we are we gutted? Are we broken? Are we contrite? Oh God, we have sinned. We have sinned. Do you embrace your collective responsibility? Or is it a little bit like the Pharisee? Well, I thank God that I'm not like him. Not like that Christian. I'm not like that leader. And do you see, my brother and sister, that Christ not merely confessed our sin, not merely identified with our sin, but took it all. Thank God for the cross. He took it all. Hallelujah for the cross. Tonight, from seven till eight, in a very personal, intimate time around communion. I'm going to lead us through this prayer. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll come. Gathering team.